Hello and welcome to Storytellers of STEM. My name is Rachel Villani. Today's storyteller is Dr. Scott Davidson. Scott is a PEAT researcher and this podcast episode is all about PEAT. PEAT is, very generally, partially decayed organic matter and forms the base for ecosystems you may have heard of, like peatlands, bogs, and more. Uh, peatlands are a kind of wetland, and y'all know I love wetlands, so I had a lot of fun talking about this and asking Scott all kinds of wild questions. So Scott's work specifically is focused on how disturbance and climate change will impact resilience of wetland systems, in this case, peatlands. I hope you enjoy this episode to learn about all things peat, why peat's important, what impacts peatlands have in the face of climate change in that, for example, they emit methane, which is a crazy greenhouse gas that is no good, and uh, we talk about that in the episode. So, oh, and something I forgot to mention is that Scott is doing a community science project called the Peat Pick Project. And I will link to the information for that in the show notes. And also, Scott is part of the Pete Early Career Researchers sort of group, also linked to in the show notes. Basically, all things Pete, and it's awesome. So enjoy. Cool. So I'm a wetland scientist. I know almost nothing about Pete, uh, which I feel like is weird and maybe misguided or something. I feel like peat is a type of wetland or wetland adjacent, maybe. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it definitely is a type of wetland, but many people don't think it is a wetland, um, especially because it can be quite dry sometimes. So, uh, but yeah, they're a type of wetland, and I'd say they're probably one of the most valuable ecosystems on Earth. Um, they're super important for biodiversity, water quality, flood management, and what I'm most interested in, carbon. So. Yeah. Okay. So uh, I know here we've been doing some carbon sequestration research here. Um, is that along the lines of what you've been doing with your peat research or maybe really just tell me all about your peat research? Let's start there. Okay, cool. So, yeah. So my research is looking at kind of the vulnerability and the resilience of these ecosystems to a variety of different disturbances. And these disturbances can be land use change or uh, drainage, uh, especially here in Canada or in the boreal where I work, it can be resource extraction, so mining and the associated impacts of that. Um, so, uh, but also some natural disturbances like wildfire and then just kind of the overarching impact of climate change and <laughs> how that will affect these, yeah, these wetland ecosystems. So my work is kind of mostly field-based. I feel a little bit old school when it comes to science these days. Like I'm not a modeler. I'm very much a person in the field collecting data still. Well, Me pre-COVID. Too. Me too, it's <laughs> yeah. okay. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I wish I could model things, but it's too much math. Um, but yeah, I get to go out into these awesome landscapes across Canada and we measure, well, my, my research is mostly focused on greenhouse gas emissions and kind of the relationship between how an ecosystem functions with the vegetation communities present and then how that may change under these different disturbance regimes. How does it change? <laughs> Which is a big yeah. question, I realize. <laughs> I so, mentioned yeah, it probably so, varies depending on the type of disturbance in some way. Yeah, it definitely does kind of uh, vary depending on the disturbance. But like, given how important peatlands are, historically, they've been really overlooked and overexploited. Um, and they're really... It is changing, I will say that, but there has been a lack of awareness recently on the benefits of peatlands, especially with, with regards to how much carbon they store. Um, 
so it does depend on the kind of disturbance. So uh, if you have a peatland and you drain it, then you can, you're losing all that carbon. So peatlands are important because they store so much carbon because of how waterlogged they are. So that slows down that decomposition and those mosses and those plants that are present there um, accumulate organic matter. So that builds up the peat and that's what peat is. So if you drain a peatland, get more oxygen in the system, it decomposes faster, you lose a lot of carbon to the atmosphere. Um, so that's one way it can affect carbon. Uh, the flip side is that if you make them wetter or you disturb them in a way that changes the vegetation community, then methane emissions could go up. So one of the disturbances I work on are seismic lines. I'm not sure if you've ever heard of a seismic line. I feel like no one outside of Canada, I didn't know what one was until I moved here. Uh, I'm from Scotland originally. Um, uh, and I thought it was something to do with earthquakes, but it's not. So seismic lines are long linear clearings across large areas of the boreal landscape. And in fact, they're the most anthropogenic, the biggest anthropogenic disturbance across the boreal. And they're like long linear clearings that are cleared so oil and gas companies can come in. And I don't know the internet, the science behind this part, but they can see how much oil and gas deposits are below the ground surface. So they remove the trees to make it easier. Um, but they're a huge disturbance. Like there's my supervisor, Professor Maria Strach, she had a paper published a few years ago they found that there's over 345,000 kilometers crossing peatlands in Alberta alone. So that's enough to go around the world nine times. <laughs> so yeah, that's a lot. <laughs> it's a huge disturbance. Um, so my work on is, a lot of my work recently has been focused on how these lines affect ecosystem functioning. Um, does it make the methane emissions go up because you're compacting the soil, the water tables are closer to the surface, perfect conditions for higher methane emissions, which need those anoxic environments to be produced. Um, so that's one part. And then also like one of my big interests is kind of peatland vegetation as well. Um, so seeing how the changes in vegetation occurs post-disturbance and how that might affect future carbon uptake or future carbon loss from the system. Yeah, because ideally we'd like to not add extra carbon or extra methane into the environment if we can yeah, help it, and, right? Yeah. And that's something that I find so like fascinating about peatlands is they're still really complicated. People have been studying peatlands for years and we're still asking questions sometimes like, huh, that seems like it would be a simple answer, but we don't have a simple answer for that because we don't know why it does something's doing what it's doing. So and especially with methane emissions, sometimes it can be really difficult to try and tease out exactly the relationships with the environment of variables and why some peatlands are high emissions versus low. And you think, oh, it's quite similar here, but it's a very different result in the end. Yeah, and like carbon dioxide and methane are both greenhouse gases, but then they last different lengths of time and have different impacts, and it's it's all very complicated. Oh yeah, 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 and especially because like methane, I think is it thirty times a global warming potential CO two, but only last, that's a ten year time frame, and mm -hmm. so it's um, yeah, it's a super interesting project, like research to work in. But sometimes it's a head scratcher. <laughs> yeah. Okay, I have a very basic question, and keep in mind, this is coming from South Louisiana wetland scientist, where most of our wetlands are like silt-based, and then we have some more freshwater organic style. That's probably the most dominant types. So what does like a peat, peat area look like? What is, what is peat, maybe? Because <laughs> I'm just like yeah. picturing my wetlands, and I'm like, I know that's not the same thing, but I'm just... I need it explained to me. <laughs> so yeah, like peatlands that can look so different across the world. So they cover 
nearly 3 million square kilometers of the land surface. And they're found in, I think it's something like nearly 175 countries. And so they're really different where, uh, across different parts of the world. Um, but broadly, I think if, I also think of it like ecosystem soil, the carbon stored in ecosystem soil is a balance between the photosynthesis uh, coming in from the plants and then the decomposition from microbes. But as I said earlier, the waterlogged conditions in a peatland mean that um, they're waterlogged and they're saturated and there's a lack of oxygen and this slows down that decomposition. So it means that plant matter over thousands of years builds up, builds up, builds up and becomes peat, which can be several meters thick, it can be really, really thick in some regions. And a lot like, so in Northern peatlands where I work, they can be dominated by sphagnum moss, which is like mm. the keystone ecosystem engineer. It's like such a fantastic little underrated uh, moss species. But peatlands can look so different across the world. So where I'm from in Scotland, they can be uh, kind of blanket bog type peatlands. So mm. really that kind of stereotypical windswept peatland looks really open and barren. Um, but if you look up close, it's super interesting and there's lots of biodiversity just from a distance, it doesn't look so much. But then you can also go to Southeast Asia and Indonesia and see peat swamps with massive trees. Um, and they're like, they're technically peatlands as well. Where I work out, in, out west in, um, in Alberta, the tree, the peatlands are treed. So they look like forests. The trees are just quite stunted because they're, they're growing in those waterlogged conditions. So yeah, it's a patchwork quilt of a variety of different wetlands all within it's the, the umbrella term of peatlands. And we have, and they have different kind of colloquial or local names as well. So people out here in Canada call them muskegs sometimes. Um, you have bogs, fens, swamps. So swamps can also be a type of peatland. Um, that's something that I'm working on recently as well is trying to get the importance of swamps out there because they're really understudied compared to other wetland types. Because people don't know where they fall, they can be mineral wetlands, they can be organic wetlands, mm -hmm. and we're in between. Yeah, okay, that's really interesting. I always, we're gonna get in the nitty gritty of wetland nerdery here. I, <laughs> I thought that difference between like bogs and fens and something else had to do with where the water came from. If it was like surface water or like fed from underneath, um, which we don't really have those here. Everything's surface water <laughs> around here at least. Um, yeah, so bogs, so yeah, definitely, that's the three, the two, de to define between a bog and a fen is mostly done on the uh, connection to the water. So bogs are ombotrophic, so they're fed by precipitation. So that makes them quite acidic and also quite species poor compared to fens, which are mineralotrophic, so they're connected to the groundwater. So bogs are often dominated by those sphagnum mosses and dwarf shrubs, maybe some small areas of sedges. Whereas fens can run on a uh, like a nutrient range of like poor fens, which are kind of like bogs, <laughs> they're still mossy, all the way to rich fens, which are really graminoid dominated. So really, really dominated by sedges and things. Um, but yeah, but they're also kind of uh, classified by their vegetation types connected mm -hmm. to that as well. And then swamps, like I said, kind of they're always treed. They can be defined by the tree height, um, but sometimes swamps can have a really significant organic layer. So mm -hmm. it differs around the world. In Canada, we define a peatland as having 40 centimeters or more organic matter there. Okay. I think in the UK, it's 30 centimeters. So anywhere between there, more. Interesting. It's a bit complicated that the, uh, the, the, that the definition is different. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, especially with, like I said, with swamps. Um, 
every I've been doing a study in every province in Canada has a different definition of what a swamp is. So it can be, <laughs> it can be really difficult to be like, what actually is a swamp? That's funny to me because we have swamps here. To me, a swamp is seasonally flooded at least and has trees. Yeah. You know, and we have a very specific suite of trees here that are, you know, forested wetland trees. I'm sure that's true a lot of places. Yeah, it is interesting. And that's kind of my default when I try and describe a swamp to someone is that kind of, it's like those trees, it's like a flashy water table. So some points of the year they'll be flooded, sometimes they'll be quite dry. Um, can often have quite pronounced microtopography to like those mm-hmm. trees to grow and things. But yep. especially when it comes to up here in Canada, I west black spruce swamps people don't really think of them as swamps per se but they're, yeah. but they're not really a fan because the water table is really flashy so it's super interesting and very understudied <laughs> oh yeah i'm sure i would never have pictured a spruce in the swamp honestly i don't know but maybe it's because i picture spruce being on mountains <laughs> yeah, higher well, elevation <laughs> vast areas of uh canadian peatlands are covered by black spruce um, but the, I, like i say when you get into the swamp territory to get a bit bigger they can be really quite stunted on those fens and bogs okay yeah what this is a really nerdy question how tall will the spruce get in a swamp in canada like ballpark uh i think the definition is less than 10 meters by ducks unlimited classification okay so up to 10 meters but obviously there's a bit of sure, yeah. room there um but in a peatland it can be three, like maximum four or five maybe that's pushing okay. they're really quite small and they're yeah. all kind of like uh exactly. <laughs> lopsided and things and it's good they, they, I always think of them like oh you look so resilient just growing here but you don't look very happy <laughs> like, <laughs> struggling on there that's funny yeah I would probably think the same thing yeah, the reason I ask that is because obviously South Louisiana being subtropical has a much longer growing season and you know doesn't ever really get cold really truly cold so yeah, we have like cypress and tubelo swamps that where the trees are, I don't know, 80, 90 feet tall. I'm not sure what that is in meters because I'm bad at using the science units. <laughs> but anyway, they get quite tall, I guess is the point. And so I was just trying to get an image in my head, really. Yeah, I think like the temperate swamps and the, the broad leaves or the mixed wood swamps mm-hmm. here in Canada can be much taller than um, that. Yeah, kind of the conifer or needle leaf space swamps reason the space are a bit more a bit shorter yeah i mean that makes sense also like far north from here where the growing season is much shorter and it's a bit harsher in general i think <laughs> yeah <laughs> at least weather wise yeah okay so i saw on twitter that you're doing it was the hashtag was peat pick project what is yeah. this peat pick project and that is a tongue twister project yeah it actually is I don't think I've ever said that out loud uh, <laughs> um, so yeah it's a project where I started earlier this year um, based on some of my work looking at the disturbances out west in Alberta so uh, we did a study looking at the greenness of peatland vegetation from smartphone photos so you can kind of we took photos every week across the growing season and watched and track the greenness or how the vegetation changed over time one of my favorite things of science is trying to take complicated things and you trying to understand them in a simple process. So we did that project and the results were really cool and we found some really neat and interesting things. So I thought to myself, this would be a really cool way of building a large network of peatland scientists who I would say 80% of people at the moment have a smartphone in their pocket when they're doing field work. Um, Could we harness that power, get people to take photos of their 
peatland field sites as much as, as regular as possible across the growing season and build up a, this really cool data set to kind of understand ground layer peatland phenology, so green leaf phenology, how it greens over time. So yeah, I, I put the project out there and it was proved to be much more uh, successful than I anticipated. I think COVID's kind of tripping us up a little bit. There's a lot of restrictions for people and I have a lot of people emailing me apologizing that they haven't got out yet. I'm like, it's fine, we expected it this year. A fair amount of people have signed up and the photos are already coming in. And it's just super cool seeing how, even within maybe from the end of April till now, how the, the vegetation is changing. And I just can't wait to see it over the course of the summer. And we have participants from Alaska through Canada, the UK, Europe, all the way to Mongolia. So it's a really, it's a pretty global project at the moment. So I'm super excited by it. Yeah, that's covering a lot of ground. That's awesome. Is it like going to the same location regularly or is it just like a snapshot in time? It's going to the same, so the same plot every time. Okay. So we have, uh, if you have a plot set up, it could be a permanent plot that you use for gas flux measurements, for example, or you flag it so you know where it is mm-hmm. and just take the same, a photo of the same plot every week or how often you can uh, through the growing season to try and build up that picture. Because it's something that we like, we have a kind of understanding of how these peatlands function like phenological wise, but having the scale of this project and the spatial mm-hmm. variability will be really interesting. And I think it would be really cool. It's a lot of work to get people to take photos every time. So I can't expect too much, but it'd be really cool to do multiple years of this to try and build mm-hmm. up on like a temporal resolution as well as a spatial one. Oh yeah, that would be really cool. And yeah, like, I feel like hunting down field photos is like herding cats, even just within my own crew of four. I'm like, where is this photo? Like, which camera is it on? Did you take it with your phone? <laughs> like, yeah, signed it I, and sent it to me. <laughs> I'm very much, I'm that obsessive person that I always tell my students, take photos, just take hundreds of photos. You never know when they'll come in handy. And now it's like, specifically, like we're, we're doing, we're using these photos for science now. So please take photos. But yeah, I always say, take a photo of your experiment or take a photo your field site or something that you can go back to and go, oh, it was raining that day. That's why the measurement's weird. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. I did this when I was doing my master's. I was studying rice fields here in Louisiana and I would go, I would hit every site every eight days. So like in an eight day time frame, I tried to make it in the same order. So it was like the same amount of time in between, but I would take a picture of the rice field every time I went. And so then I had these really cool, you know, every week-ish transitions of like it through the growing season and so because I did that I can imagine that what you're doing is going to give you this really cool time lapse basically yeah that's exactly it yeah, yeah. and it's quite it's, it's there's a an R script developed by um, researchers that just extracts the red blue and green information and just calculates the greenness so it's, it's super easy <laughs> in, in respects to how the data is collected and how it's processed they can answer some really cool interesting questions yeah, that sounds awesome. That's a clever idea. Yeah, I, 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 one of the reasons why I did it, if I'm honest, was I was applying for jobs and kept getting feedback that my research wasn't global enough. So I was like, <laughs> I'll show you global. I'll try and make a global project. And here we are. Hopefully it can, it can be a, a project. You might have created like a really cool monster. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> oh, now fun. your research is too global. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Um, can you explain to me what phenology is slash means? Oh, okay. Yeah, this is why I do it succinctly. So what I'm saying is phenology is technically green leaf phenology. So how the vegetation greens up. So the spring green up, how it changes from kind of dead and dormant in the winter, the spring green up, hitting maximum greenness in the summer, and then senescing towards the fall. 
Um, but phenology in general is kind of the study of um, changing plant traits. So it could be bud burst, um, mm. leaf, leaf out, that kind of thing. So we're doing it from a non-destructive way. So you can do it destruct, measure it destructively, measure, uh, measure leaf length and that kind of thing. But I wanted to try and develop a way of doing it so we don't disturb the plots, but we can still gain that information. Yeah, okay, that's cool. That's what I thought you meant, but I was just like, I'm not 100% sure, and I guarantee someone listening has no idea. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah, yeah, we do similar. We do vegetation surveys every summer. I mean, it's, you know, not sphagnum moss, although every once in a while we do find some sphagnum in very random places. But, um, yeah, we do it, like, in peak growth season because that's when it's ideal to know what's really happening somewhere. I would I would encourage you though if you uh, and maybe in future years if you start to, if you're at the same the same field sites regularly across the summer take those photos. We do take a plot photo, but I mean it's from the side, I guess, because vegetation could be taller than me, <laughs> so <That's true. laughs> it's like a side viewpoint from like Rachel height. We always have like a board with the date and the plot. We go to the same plots year after year after year, um, so we have all this detailed data, but we don't necessarily have like what you're doing. That is something that has like, with all this new technology coming out that like maybe will replace Rachel in the field down the road or maybe Rachel will be done with field work by then. I could see how like they could use a drone to just like hover over the plots and then get like a bird's eye view instead of like Rachel standing next to it eye view. And that, then that would be, that's something you could do probably because it would be very skewed, I think, from like my my perspective and not always necessarily being at the exact same angle that would be something maybe down the road what we could do we could with new technology yeah i think drones are a super interesting way of kind of developing that um way of monitoring landscapes but not having to be there per se so i think it's, it's a, a big part of my work is also understanding the disturbance but understanding how to restore these sites as well mm -hmm. and it's something that's kind of lacking is to you can restore a site in order to like monitor over long periods of time, it's a lot of people power and it's a lot of money. And there yeah. needs to be ways that we can try and um, do that and keep keep an eye, keep an eye on these ecosystems and how they're functioning uh -huh. over time post post restoration without having to get field crews in there every year to take measurements and things. And I think drones in that sense could be really useful. Yeah, I agree. That's kind of what we're at because I, I work on a massive coastal monitoring project. And so that's what we do is we monitor wetlands year round and we do a bunch of different things. But then the vegetation itself is every summer. Yeah, I don't know exactly how many people work on this project, but there's 400 sites and every site has 10 plots and, you know, they're all scattered throughout the coast. I mean, it's easily 30 or 40 people every summer doing field work like. Wow, yeah. <laughs> It takes all summer. Yeah. <laughs> I do yeah. miss field work though. COVID has uh, scuppered my plans for the last two years. So. Oh yeah, that's really tough. Yeah. yeah. Next year we can get back out somewhere. So are you doing um, a postdoc right now? Yeah, I'm actually in my last week. I am uh, moving to the UK next month to start a faculty position. First of all, that's really exciting. Congratulations. <laughs> <laughs> it's a big move coming up shortly. I was going to ask, like, how has, you know, the pandemic delayed your fieldwork and delayed your research and maybe like delayed your career progression, but maybe it's okay a little bit in a way. I think in terms of like being a scientist and why I enjoy being a scientist has been hard because I like working with people and I want to bounce ideas off and that type of thing. Like mm -hmm. COVID and the lockdown has made me realize that 
scratching my head over a problem in R is not as fun as when you can just knock on someone's door and ask for help. And like you have to form like formalize an email, make sure it makes sense. And whereas yeah. in real life, you can just word vomit it out and it's someone uh-huh. will get it. So that side is difficult. And I, I've been very fortunate in my postdoc that like I, I didn't have any kind of major field data collection myself. It was always kind of side projects and other things from the students. And then so I kind of pivoted towards more synthesis type projects. So and that I think. I'll be fortunate this year that I'll have a few papers come out, but I, I feel like I will feel the impact of COVID in a few years' time where I'm like, oh, I don't have any kind of new data to like play with for a while until I get my own research group set up or research plan set up. Um, so yeah, it's like, I feel very fortunate that I've been able to work through the lockdown. It's had very little impact on my day-to-day. Um, but yeah, on that kind of science has been hard over this last year just because I really miss speaking to my colleagues and thinking mm-hmm. like and overthinking things and you like uh-huh. get a review of a paper and be like this is the worst thing in the world oh my gosh and then someone just comes along and goes no it's fine just do this and I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. yeah yeah it's hard when you can't just like hash that out with someone in office down you know and you have to be like okay, I see that they're on teams or whatever, but their bubble's red. Like, do I bother them? Is it always red? Like, is it fine? What are they, do I just text them instead? Yeah, yeah. when you could just like walk past their office and see if they're busy, you know? Yeah, and that's, that's, that's it. That's part of the, the fun side of science. It's that kind of camaraderie where we're all in it together. And it does feel like we're all in it together still, but separate, which is always fun. <laughs> yeah, no, I totally understand. It's like, yeah, we're all in it together from our houses. <laughs> Yeah, I totally, that's how I feel too. Like, I, I'm only, I see my coworker when I go like borrow supplies from her, like, hey, I need to borrow the printer for a week, you know, because we share a printer, which is ridiculous, but because um, we don't actually have an office right now, which is a whole other unrelated to the pandemic, but it's fine. Um, and then like, when we go in the field, I'm like, I feel like I haven't seen you in months. And it's been like two weeks since we did field work last because we've, we've been doing field work we restarted in May 2020 but like doing it driving separate vehicles and doing all these other things and like only doing day trips and so for a while we were driving like many hours every day just trying to like cobble together fieldwork since we live relatively close you know um it's not like a remote it's not a long distance we really have to travel it's just within the state or whatever so but yeah it's definitely weird like it's it's harder to like keep track and have those connections and all that when it's very weird yeah definitely I really I always describe myself I, I think socially I'm an introvert but professionally I, I need to be an extrovert I need people around me <laughs> that's interesting I think I'm probably an introvert in both but like I can only spend so many days in my house <laughs> you know <laughs> like as much as I love my dog I can only spend so many days in my house by myself <laughs> Yeah. yeah so the going to the office was nice because I could see coworkers, you know and even though I was still in my own space but can't do that from my house um so tell me about what you're about to move to the UK and do starting a professorship is that what you said yeah so in the UK they call them lectureships it's a lecture okay. it's, it's the equivalent of an assistant professor um, at the University of Plymouth and ecosystem resilience so I'm very excited to start the next career step scary but it's exciting and yeah, that'd be nice to go back to the UK. Been in Canada three years and Canada's amazing, but part of me is like, oh, excited to go home. And yeah, you said, you, about, said you, were, you said you were from Scotland, yeah. Yeah, I'm from Scotland originally. Yeah, but, yeah, so that'll be nice going home. Yeah, 
my accent is kind of all over the place. People think I'm American, actually. (laughs) That's funny. (laughs) I talked to so many people from, I, I, I can't always tell the accent, you know, it was like, when you said Scotland, I was like, oh yeah, I hear it. And also he's been in Canada for a while. <laughs> I did because I yeah, grew up in Scotland and I moved to England to do my master's and my PhD. But a big chunk of my PhD was in Alaska and had a lot of American colleagues. So I, uh-huh. I quite quickly neutralized my accent and then coming to Canada. So some people are like, he's Scottish and there's no doubt about it. And some people are like, hey, South African, like where where is your voice? <laughs> Where's your voice from? And I was like, I don't know. How did you end up in the peat world, in ecology, maybe in general? Like, what led you down this path? How far back do you want to go? <laughs> so, I think I, I find my path to this career is quite interesting in a sense. I never did science in school. I wanted to be a lawyer. I don't know. I, I was kind of lost in school. I, school wasn't the happiest time for me, so I was a bit lost. Um, but I never ever thought this could be a career path so in in my kind of final years of school I took things like well in Scotland we call it modern studies it's kind of like sociology and languages and I took English and I was like okay I'm going to go to uni and university and I'm going to study English and politics because that's the thing I should and I hated it (laughs) I was like oh no this is not the right choice for me and it was a very miserable first year but luckily in Scotland they have this thing called like a three degree pathway where you take two modules a semester that's related to the degree on paper that you signed up for and one separate so I did English politics and geography Mm -hmm. and geography was a revelation it's like oh this is all the things I'm interested in I didn't even know existed because I didn't even do it in school so I didn't know, like, when people were excited about geography from, like, oh, I did this in school. I didn't have that reference point. But it just felt like a weight had been lifted. Like, oh, this is what I'm supposed to do. So then I did a, an undergraduate thesis looking at how debris-covered glaciers in the Italian Alps and how vegetation grows on them. So that was some field work out there in Italy. Oof, a long time ago now, it feels. Uh, and that kind of, like, really sparked my interest in field work. And I was like, oh, I need to be in the field. I need to see processes happening for me to really understand so I thought to myself, right, I'll do a master's. So I did a master's in polar and alpine science and got to go to Svalbard up in, the, up in the Arctic and just kind of fell in love with science and research and this kind of thing. I did a PhD in the North Slope of Alaska, uh, looking at methane emissions and vegetation communities and how they're changing the climate change and how that affects the, the methane emissions. And I loved it and loved every minute of it. But then in my postdoc, I kind of thought to myself, okay, do I, do I stay with the same processes and move ecosystem or do I stay in the same ecosystem but move processes? Because I was like, I want to learn something here. So then I got a postdoc in the, in the boreal. So it's a little bit further south, there's trees. So it's similar processes, but totally different ecosystem. And it just kind of peeps, just feels like home. It just feels like walking into a comfortable sofa. This feels nice. <laughs> <laughs> I like the way you describe that because that's how like certain wetland areas feel to me too. I'm like, oh, this place feels like home, which is weird because I don't live right here. <laughs> yeah. But I totally understand. Yeah. And I, I kind of, in my undergraduate, I really wanted to work in alpine ecosystems. Um, but I, I unfortunately had a really bad asthma attack and that kind of scuppered my plans to climb glaciers every day to do field work. I was like, my lungs can't take it. So like, what's similar? Flat tundra small stature plants still under harsh conditions but it's really flat so it's fine <laughs> that works though uh yeah. and tundra is awesome yeah and like easy well i say easier at least you're not going uphill when you're walking across it i don't know if it's necessarily easier because i feel like walking across like 
walking across like wetlands here, you can't really trust the surface. There might be a hole there, or there might be about to be a hole there where you are now in that hole. If there's a hole in a peatland, I will fall in it. I'm six foot four, but I like regularly fall into my waist. And like, if I'm at my waist, it's pretty deep. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's funny. I regularly fall in holes here too. And I like to joke that like my job is driving an airboat and falling in holes. <laughs> so, I mean, and you know, science in between, right? Yeah. <laughs> So do you think when you start your new position that you will stick with the ecosystems or the processes part or some combination of both? A combination of both. I think the nice part of moving to the next stage of my career is hopefully being able to dip a toe into all the things I'm interested in now. So I would like to quite go back to some tundra work, but I'm definitely, my heart is definitely in the peelands and I've built up some really nice collaborations here in Canada that I'd like to continue. And then like, I kind of want to, go rogue and do something really like different like maybe go back to alpine my lungs are better now so <laughs> <laughs> yeah i was gonna ask you actually i was like is there some place you want to branch out to you know or maybe send some poor grad student <laughs> oh yeah so many places i think I, I i would really like to work in glacial forefields so like how vegetation succession occurs post-glacier and all that okay. stuff like, that'd be really cool but yeah there's so many places i would love to go and visit some tropical peatland zones but I don't want to work there because it's too hot and there's too many bugs scary bugs there's lots of bugs in the north but they're not scary but yeah. okay so that's an interesting that brings up interesting thing because I definitely misguidedly thought that all peat was more northern latitudes and it was like the circle around the top of the earth but that's apparently not the case huh no so yeah there's peatlands so like huge areas of so I think 12 percent of Canada's land area are covered in peatlands so down from the Northwest Territories, across uh, Boreal, Alberta, uh, Saskatchewan, Manitoba. And then you've got one of the largest um, expanses of peatlands in Northern Ontario, the Hudson Bay Lowlands. It's a huge area of peatlands. And all across Quebec and into New Brunswick and the provinces. And then Ireland has a lot of peatlands that are unfortunately very disturbed. The UK is the same, has a lot of disturbed peatlands. There's peatlands across Europe. Russia has a huge amount. But also um, one of the largest peatland expanses is in the Congo in Africa. Oh, yeah, it's um, straight up on the equator area. <laughs> yeah, and there's huge amounts of peatlands in Indonesia. And there's peatlands in New Zealand. There's peatlands, there's upland peatlands in Australia. There's peatlands in, in Peru and, and then in Patagonia as well and things like that. So and everywhere in between. So they're everywhere. The people just don't realize that. And they're, I, I'm really excited for the future of peatland research. I think it's so nice to have the public on board now and how important they are and maybe that overexploitation is starting to to wane a little and people are realizing how important they are because they are one of our best players in the fight against climate change you know, mm-hmm. we can try to avoid disturbance or restore them back to once what once were mm-hmm. it will only benefit <laughs> the world right. and the climate and the globe as a whole so, yeah. yeah there's no downside to that as far as yeah, i can see not at all yeah, it's similar here. You know, we're, we've been doing a lot of wetlands research and restoration and, you know, partly because our coast is just falling apart and from like a structural perspective, but then also like if we can also contain carbon in there too, like that would be also beneficial. Plus all the other things like storm surge reduction and water treatment and filtering and all just all of the things that come with having a coast of wetlands. But yeah, it's the same idea. It's like there isn't really a downside here as long as we like stop disturbing what we have and then do this big restoration effort. But it's it's tough. Oh, totally. Yeah. And it's expensive as well. But oh, yeah. I think it's super important. And all those 
like you mentioned, all those co-benefits. So it, regardless of what angle you're taking it from, like are you coming in from a biodiversity point of view, then there'll be co-benefit of carbon mm-hmm. sequestration or vice versa, or water quality or flood management and things. So mm-hmm. It's good that we're now getting all these interdisciplinary teams speaking to each other now rather than being separate entities in a vacuum. And then I think it'd be, it's nice that we're starting to be like, everyone benefits if this ecosystem is maintained or restored. Yeah, and that's the big... Well, I don't want to say struggle. That's a challenge here because there's a lot of public perception about one thing that maybe is not completely accurate. And so you have to do all this like on the groundwork and all the monitoring and the rest that physical restoration, because a lot of it here is like rebuilding wetlands using dredge material from the Mississippi River or whatever. So there's a lot of like mechanical stuff that needs to be done. And then the grasses come back and all that. But then there's also like human perceptions that have to be deals. It's like a whole PR campaign, basically. It's so complex and I'm really glad I'm not on that side of it. <laughs> like, yeah, it's really like public perception, I think is so key. And I often say like what David Attenborough did for plastics needs to be done for other components of, mm-hmm. <laughs> of biodiversity ecosystem. Cause I think once you get the public on board, it makes it so, easy, so much easier. Cause it's really hard to get the public to be interested in that invisible greenhouse gas. And why yeah. should you stay in the ground? You know I mean like that kind of thing is they can't see it. It's not cuddly. It's not cute. Mm-hmm. Um, but and I think historically peatlands have been so negatively written about in literature. Like no one's ever like all those bog swamps and in movies like The Princess Bride and all this stuff. <laughs> yeah. Like there's all these negative connotations of what a, a peatland is. They're boggy. They're swampy. They're lots of bugs. They're not mm-hmm. nice places. So I think that doesn't help either. People have this kind of negative connotation about what a peatland is. And thankfully it's changing. The tides are turning. And I also really like being part of that conversation of getting people on board with peatlands because I will speak about them until the cows come home. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, that's interesting. I don't think I realized that peatlands had a similar negative viewpoint historically like that wetlands do because wetlands were like evil and dark and harbors of disease. And that's where like, massive monsters lived or whatever and like you know so they would just like drain wetlands and rebuild like whatever over them like because that was the only good use for a wetland a hundred something years ago but like wetlands are awesome and they do all kinds of cool things and we're we know that now but there's this like this lingering perspective that they're bad or whatever and that's not true for wetlands or peatlands (laughs) yeah yeah no peatlands are just they're they're so cool it's really under under well right? they are underappreciated apart from in the peatland community where they're just the best in the world <laughs> i feel like the peatland community is probably quite small like the wetland community kind of is yeah it's like so like peatlands are wetlands that's, that's something i'd like to change people's like viewpoint on is that, um they still kind of they're in that the same yeah, realm yeah the, the under the big before. umbrella yeah yeah and it's it is small. It's amazing how like we people speak about like I don't know if you've heard of the phrase like academic family trees and things, and you realize that everyone's connected to everyone by some kind of PhD defense or uh-huh. whatever <laughs> things. So I think in the grand in the grand scheme of science and research, people in the community is small, but it's incredibly friendly, and yeah, it feels good. like it, it feels like being welcomed into a a really exclusive club you're like oh cool I'm one of the I'm one of these people there <laughs> that's cool yeah maybe I should have phrased that question as like peatlands with and said coastal marshes maybe that's why I should have had it because they're all wetlands like you said yeah. <laughs> the big wetlands umbrella 
that's good to have that community because it can be quite rare in science as a whole, but I feel like it's more common in ecology type fields, which I mean, I'm partial to, so. No, it's a, it's a fantastic community and really, really global as well. Like people are working mm-hmm. across, across regions and things. And we had, there was a recent, recent conference the, uh, the last few days there um, online, obviously, yeah, where it's normally a person, but they were getting people from, it was based in Canada, but it was, attendees from Europe, China, Singapore, New Zealand, states. So huge, huge people community there. That's awesome. Yeah, it sounds like there would be lots of opportunity for future collaborations in cool places around the world. So that'd be cool. Yeah, definitely. It's something we actually um, brought up and kind of linking back to our previous conversation about the COVID and lockdown was we created the PEAT, which is the Peatland ECR Action Team as a way of connecting peatland research early career peatland researchers across the world so we started that last march and it's kind of grown strength to strength over even just a year but it's a really neat nice way of seeing a global peatland research community come together and we have things kind of we call peat talks which is a global lab meeting where people can just come along present a figure present like an idea i'm stuck on some statistical analysis can i get some help that type of thing so it's, it's a really nice kind of community that's being built out there yeah, that's awesome. I actually saw that link, I think, on your Twitter, and I was like, what does ECR mean? But early career researcher, I just figured it out. <laughs> Being not in academia, I uh, I don't know. I'm just scientist. It took me a moment. No, that's great. I think that that's great to foster that community and collaboration, and it's better for everybody and for the system y'all are working to protect and restore. Yeah, definitely. It's, it's important to kind of get the new generation we we had a, a session at AGU last year called Old Pete New Voices, Frontiers in Global Research from Pete and DCRs. So that was really cool. Kind of, I love that title. But it was really a really cool thing seeing people from across the world come together for a common goal. Yeah. And uh, I mean, I've never been to AGU, but I know it's a massive conference. And so that's a good place to bring everybody together, probably. Yeah, yeah. It was nice to get it on that kind of global stage. It's mm-hmm. kind of the importance of just these ecosystems. Yeah, that's awesome. If you weren't doing peat research, what do you think you'd be doing instead? Do you have any idea? I have two, I suppose. There's like a science and a non-science answer. The science answer, kind of, we spoke about earlier. I would love to go maybe back and depth my research and look at that kind of thing. The non-science answer is I would, I love movies and I want to, I would love to go to like film studies school. <laughs> like I love reading about movies and watching movies and understanding why movies are movies and that kind of thing so it's very not related to, to my research in the slightest but I if, I if I started my life over I think I could put that in that film as well and be equally as happy because I just love the escapism and it's something that I've really missed over lockdown is movie theaters and cinemas like the fact that they're just closed makes me so sad me too I love going to the movies I actually worked at a movie theater in high school in the beginning of college and I must have seen every movie that came out from like 2001 to 2004 no matter how terrible (laughs) and I just loved that we would stay after work and watch them before you know the night before it was supposed to come out because things were still on film so we had to splice it all together and you know (laughs) make sure we put it together right <laughs> you know I just I just love that and then just going to the movies now well obviously not right now but like going to the movies is still it's like a break from life to go absorb in some very beautiful film that is like very distracting and hopefully entertaining and or educational in some ways or both yeah I really enjoy it as well 
yeah, I, I did something I really realized how much I used going to the movies as a escape from life in a sense and like that sitting down for two hours in a dark room just completely forgetting about everything and watching movies I really miss that it's nice to speak to someone who loves movies because often I hear people like oh I'm not much of a movie person I'm like that's all I do is watch movies <laughs> yeah but it's I find it hard to like watch a movie at my house and like put in the like the two hours to sit there and watch it because like I'm gonna get distracted or my phone's gonna ding or the dog's gonna want to go for a walk or something which you know, and then I'll just do all those things. And it might take me two days to finish the movie. So it didn't end up having the same like immersive impact that it would have if I was in a dark theater with like yeah. surround sound or whatever else and my phone on silent in my purse, you know. <laughs> yeah, it's just not the same impact. No, not at all. So I totally understand. <laughs> I actually think it's more interesting when the answer to that question is a total like 180 from what the person is doing now because like we're whole people, you know, we might have all kinds of interests. Yeah, that's something I really find important about science and making sure that it's, it can be your all if you want it to be your all, but it's not my all. Like it's not, it's just one facet of my personality. Mm-hmm. And I love what I do, but there's other things I love. And I think it can sometimes be quite intimidating for people coming into these research jobs or things where they feel like it's all, all consuming mm-hmm. and you have to like live and breathe it. You don't have to live and breathe it to still enjoy it and get something out of it. It's important to have balance. That's what I always try and tell students that it's like... Take, take time off not to think about feelings for a while yeah I totally agree yeah I have um at points in my career felt like I was unambitious or something because I did my master's and then I've been working on the same project for 10 years but I like the project and I like my job and I don't really want to get a PhD that sounds kind of terrible for me and, you know, it's not for everybody. And then, you know, I've been doing the same job for 10 years, but I'm happy. So, like, that's fine. That doesn't mean I'm unambitious. But it's like a weird, like, it's an internal struggle. It's not like a struggle someone else has put on me. But I guess the point of that ramble is, you know, there are a lot of ways to be happy in your work. And it doesn't have to be 100% of your life. I mean, unless yeah. you want it to be. But it doesn't have to be. Yeah, exactly. I think that's something that Twitter sometimes does a bad job at doing is showing that there's other parts of scientists and like everyone, like I use science Twitter as a, like it's very much a component of my research now. Like it feels like a community of scientists and we're all working towards things. It's really exciting. Sometimes it can be really hard to see all these like people being super successful with big papers coming in, big grants. And you're like, oh no, I don't have any, like I don't have that. And it's like, and like no, take a step back and realize that I'm happy where I am. I'm happy what I'm doing. That's, it's more than fine. It's like, awesome what I'm doing because I should be part of it yeah there's a lot of ways to do science I have never published a paper and I'm on science twitter but I'm tweeting about Dawson's Creek because that's what I've been watching you know like you know I'm a whole person and I'm not doing science right now so I'm gonna and I'm watching Dawson's Creek so I'm gonna tweet about that (laughs) I I often think it's funny like if I think of my twitter if you think if you look at my twitter it's very much like Pete science if you looked at my likes it would be RuPaul's Drag Race and the Oscars (laughs) (laughs) that's funny well so like I got out of grad school in 2010 so like like I got out of jail is the way I said it Uh, I graduated from grad school in 2010 and so I often wonder like what it would have been like if I had had you know social media beyond Facebook then and also a smartphone you know (laughs) like there's so much opportunity to like to use the technology we have to communicate about our science not like give away results or whatever but you know just just engage with it with the public and it's just amazing oh totally it's something that I find really interesting and the idea of science communication and how to convey science to policymakers or 
stakeholders or the general public is a it's a it's an art form mm-hmm. and it's something we're not taught right it's now yeah. part of our job and it's really difficult to sometimes be like oh I don't know how to like some people are master storytellers <laughs> and some people are not and it's it's hard to like I don't I worry about what I say and trip over my words and write tweets and delete tweets and rewrite mm-hmm. things all the time some people are just magicians at it and like wow you're such a lovely way of saying something that I would it would take me 10 hours to try and write <laughs> I don't know like Twitter I think in other aspects of the world Twitter gets a bad rap for good reasons but I think for science and the way the communities are being fostered and the building up of people mm-hmm. by Twitter is as researchers and early researchers is a fantastic resource yeah science Twitter is the best Twitter in my opinion yes. <laughs> the rest of Twitter is scary I don't know <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> So when you read when you leave science Twitter, you're like, oh, people on Twitter cannot be nice. Okay, I'm gonna leave again. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm done. I'm done for now. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Speaking of, you know, scientists and people in STEM also being whole people, I would like to end by asking you two questions that are not STEM related at all. Or maybe they the answers might be, but the questions aren't. Um, so the first one is what is your hobbies or what are your hobbies? Watching movies. Uh, <laughs> I, I I read a lot as well. I'm a big reader. Oh, good, because that's the second question. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I, I suppose movies do take up most of my hobbies. I did, but I did get a sewing machine for Christmas, um, so I started making things, which was really fun. I have grand, like grand aspirations of being incredibly creative and crafty, but it never quite happens in the way I wanted to, so I get frustrated. I also have the shortest attention span. So if something isn't perfect right away, I give up on it really quickly. Um, <laughs> so I am a bit of a perfectionist. So. I find that like for creative outlets, I need instructions. So, which is seems counterintuitive, but like playing music there, the music is instructions <laughs> or like I make quilts that it's instructions, like there's a pattern or whatever. And so like, it is creative, but it's also telling me what to do. And I like that <laughs> yeah. left to my own devices. Nothing, nothing would happen. And I would get frustrated <laughs> <all the way. laughs> yeah. So, yeah. So you said you read a lot. The second question is, what are you reading right now? I am reading a book called oh I can't remember the title it's about it's by Dara McNulty who is a teenager from Ireland and it's a nature diary for the year it's a fantastic kind of snapshot of Irish wildlife and Irish ecosystems I think it won a big award that's awesome yeah when you if you think of it later send me the title I want to look it up because it sounds like I want to read that which is why I asked this question because I always need more things to read (laughs) I will say in terms of books I could go on for this forever I don't want to keep you if you haven't read it before, you should read Ring of Bright Water, which is my favorite. What was the title? The Ring of Bright Water okay. by, Gab- by Gavin Maxwell. It's a fantastic book. It's a, my favorite book. Of, I have like 19 copies of it in various different formats because <laughs> it's just, I'm so obsessed with it. It's from the 60s. It's about, a, it's a true story. It's in like a travel writing, nature written writing piece about a, a guy who moves to Scotland with an otter. And lives on the west coast and just like writes about nature the, the landscape around him it's just like so immersive and fantastic yeah this sounds amazing i'm going to immediately look this up <laughs> yeah. yeah so i read a lot of um nature science books sci-fi and like whatever random other things sound good <laughs> yeah so that sounds right up my alley yeah i mostly read nature and writing i i, I weirdly can't get on board with fiction I get frustrated with fiction because I'm like you're not writing this how I want you to write it whereas if I know it's non-fiction I'm like well it's their words it's their, it's their experience I can't change it <laughs> that's interesting yeah I read 
it's like 50 50 maybe if I read fiction nonfiction but the fiction is mostly science fiction so I feel like it's it's a big category I read maybe more science fiction than other types of fiction <laughs> I'm reading the Broken Earth trilogy by uh, N.K. Jemison, which if you have not read is really good I mean it's fiction but it's about I haven't read the, I've finished the first two books I haven't read the third one yet but as far as I can tell, it's about all these seasons that keep happening on Earth and like what has, they don't know what's causing them yet necessarily. I don't know what's going to happen, but it seems to be like climate related in a way. So that's kind of interesting. That's interesting. I, I believe a good friend of mine actually has told me to read that in the past. So I think I, I think I might actually have the first one on my Kindle. So nice. I should check yeah. it out. I mean, every book won the Hugo, which is amazing in a trilogy that like never happens. Oh, wow. Yeah, it was really, it's been really good. I haven't read the third one yet, so I don't know what's going to happen. And I wouldn't tell you anyway, because that would be spoilers. <laughs> but it's, it is very interesting. Well, awesome. It has been so nice to meet you and talk to you. And good luck with your move. That's a big deal. And also in a pandemic. <laughs> yeah, with a, with a cat as well, which is like trying to fire uh, a cat from the Canada to the UK is proving quite tricky. So, uh, so, but yeah, thank you. I'm, I'm excited for the next, the next adventure. Yeah, uh, I'm sure it's going to be amazing and good luck. Thank you. It was very nice to meet you too. Yeah, yeah, it was a lot of fun. Thank you. Uh, I learned a lot about Pete today. Hey, y'all, it's Rachel here. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. I hope you enjoyed it. Um, I just wanted to have a quick reminder that if you or a friend or someone you think would be a good guest, if you have any people like that, let me know or send them my way in some way Um, and how you can do that is you can find me on twitter at flying cypress you can find the podcast on facebook at storytellers of stem that's stem with two m's we also have a shiny new twitter account for the podcast so you can find the podcast on twitter at storytellers42 yes i'm a nerd you can also email me storytellersofstem at gmail.com Or you can find me and everything else on my website, rachelvelani.com. So you have loads of ways to get in touch with me. I want to hear from you. Go like the Facebook page. Follow me on Twitter. Follow all the storytellers on Twitter since they're mostly all there. And just, you know, have a good day. And thank you for listening. Thank you.